Well, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and last week we looked at the birth of John the Baptist. The birth of John the Baptist was, of course, accompanied by uh, some pretty amazing things. First of all, we saw that his father's mouth was opened. His father had been made mute uh, because he failed to believe the angel Gabriel's message, and that was a judgment upon him. But when his son was born and he wrote on a tablet, his name is John, his mouth was open and he was able to speak. And then we saw probably an even a greater miracle in the sense that the Holy Spirit filled him and he prophesied about his son and about the coming Savior, the one who would bring salvation to his people, not only salvation from physical enemies, but ultimately from sin and death. And this morning, uh, by God's providence, we get to look at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was prophesied about and who is the focus of the salvation that comes from God. And so our passage this morning is Luke chapter 2. It's one that you no doubt have heard many times in your life, uh, and we will be looking today at verses 1 through 20. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open up and follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, didn't bring one or don't own one, if you look in the seat in front of you, you'll find one uh, underneath that seat, and uh, you can find our passage today on page 857 of that particular Bible. Luke chapter 2, begin at verse 1. <clears throat> in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary 
and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, Luke begins this section about the birth of Jesus Christ by placing it in space and time. He says, in those days. Notice Luke doesn't begin once upon a time. This isn't a fairy tale. This is history. The Bible is history. And Luke, from the beginning of this book, has talked about how he is a historian, how he is researching all of this. He's talking to eyewitnesses. He's he's interviewing those who were there. And what he's writing is history. And he's saying that to the guy he's writing to, Theophilus, so that that person who's going to read this history can know for certain that these things occurred. The Bible is history. It's redemptive history. It's it's the history of God's working in history to redeem his people, but it is history nonetheless. Oftentimes, uh, especially our society today, uh, will basically scoff at, at the idea that any of this is true. They may acknowledge that someone named Jesus was born, that someone named Jesus lived, but surely he can't be the Jesus of the Bible. But one of the things we have to reckon with is the fact that the Bible, and specifically Luke, is history, ancient history, that has been shown to be excellent history. Uh, I did an internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, under a pastor, their senior pastor is named Mark Devers. Some of you have probably heard of him, uh, but a lot of the books that he writes are for pastors, and so maybe some of you haven't. Uh, but one of the things that he mentioned when I was doing this internship is that he did his undergrad in history at Duke University. And he said that what was interesting is that uh, the, while the Duke Divinity School liberal theological professors would scoff at the history of the Bible, his history professors, who were non-Christians, thought the Bible was the gold standard of ancient historical documents. And when I was in Israel in 2013, the, the tour guide there, who also was not a Christian, told us when we saw all these archaeologists out there digging and, and brushing away artifacts and things, that they would have their tools in one hand and their Bible in the other, because the Bible was so accurate about where and when things happened. And so Luke is a historian. He places Jesus' birth in history, and he even names two historical figures here, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. And Caesar Augustus is well known. Uh, Even those of you who who are not historians uh, will no doubt have heard of Caesar Augustus. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He became the first emperor of Rome. He ruled from 27 BC to AD 14. And here we also have a a man named Quirinius who was governor, and and history again shows us that that he was the governor of Syria. Now, he was officially governor of Syria 
in A.D. 6 and 7. And it was in A.D. 6 that, that he issued a census, and it, it was a notorious census. It was one that, that caused problems for, for the Jewish people, and in fact, Luke mentions that census in Acts, Acts chapter 5, which is basically part two of Luke's gospel. At this point in time, Quirinius was not officially governor of Syria, but this Greek word here, translated governor, can mean administrator. He, he was around at that time. And what Luke is saying is this was the first census. You all know about that second one that I mentioned in Acts. This is the first one when Quirinius was an administrator in Syria. So Luke places this in history. And we can see here that just like we experience today, that history is, hasn't really changed much. He says here that Caesar Augustus, we don't know why he issued this ruling, but he made a decree that all the world, that would be the known world in the Roman Empire, should be registered. And that word there means technically it's a registration for tax purposes. Things haven't changed much. Governments tax people, and they taxed them back then too, in probably 4 or 5 BC, whenever this was. And, you know, just like today we have to pay our taxes, they had to pay their taxes then. And in fact, probably even more so because you had to, the guy that was telling you you had to pay your taxes could have your head on a platter uh, if you didn't do it. And so we see here that, that they did. Everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Now the reason... Here, in this area, they registered each to their own town is because while the Romans uh, demanded taxes from every province, they gave each province the ability to collect these taxes in whichever way they wanted. Rome ruled with an iron fist, but it also gave a lot of leeway to, to the areas. They, they wanted basically peace. If, if an uprising happened, they'd go in and crush it. But in general, they wanted things to go smoothly. And in Israel, the way people registered is they went back to their hometown of where their ancestors were from. So Joseph isn't going to register in Nazareth. He's going to register in Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's lineage is from. We see this here. Luke says he has to go to Bethlehem because it's the city of David. And Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. Now, we see that David is from Bethlehem. We, we find this in 1 Samuel 16 when we're introduced to David. Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint the next king of Israel. And the Lord says, I want you to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and you will anoint one of his sons as the next king. Now, <coughs> Bethlehem is south of Nazareth. Just an interesting uh, little historical detail here when you're reading the Bible, and it says he went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We, we would say he went down, because when we, read, we, when we talk about distances and all of that, we're talking about north and south on a map. They didn't speak that way. Back then, they, they spoke of elevation, and so Bethlehem was more elevated than Nazareth, so they went up to Bethlehem. Now, you might think, well, okay, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is Nazareth is 90 miles north of Bethlehem. 
90 miles. Out of nowhere comes this decree, and they have to travel 90 miles. Scholars say it probably took at least five days to get there. Now, the problem is that Mary, his wife, is nine months pregnant. Imagine that, guys. Those of you who are fathers who have had to rush your wife somewhere to give birth know how stressful that can be. I remember there have been, <laughs> there have been two, maybe three, I don't remember how many of, our, the six, of the six births that we've gone through that I felt the stress while standing in the pulpit. But one of them was particularly stressful. One, one was uh, Eva was born on Easter Sunday. And I remember that Sunday, uh, we, we, we came here, I was scheduled to preach, and as I stood here in the pulpit, I kept looking down at Michelle, waiting for any signal that, because I mean, the, the due date was imminent. And, uh, and so the, the service goes by, it was fine, she never gave me a signal. Afterwards, I walked up and said, hey, you know, is it time? She said, no, we can stand and fellowship some. And people are saying, why are you here? Get out of here. I said, well, Michelle gave us permission. Next thing I know, a couple seconds later, she says, we've got to go. And, <laughs> and the panic that ensued as, we, as I you know, sped down Route 3 to get to the Bryn Mawr Birthing Center, uh, stop and go, stop and go, and I was speeding to every light, and Michelle kept saying, stop, you're jerking the car around, and I, I just wanted to get there. Now, you can picture Joseph. All he wants, I'm sure, is to just be at home, be where his family is, be where her family is, be where their friends are for the birth of this baby, and out of nowhere comes this decree from some government leader somewhere that doesn't know them, doesn't care anything about them, just wants to collect taxes. I can picture Joseph asking the Lord, why? Lord, why now? We have to remember, these are real people. Again, we have to remind ourselves that they're not, they're just like we are. I can picture him wondering, why, Lord, why this timing? It's already been hard enough. We've, my, my wife is already the object of scorn and gossip. We, we've already been put through enough having this birth that neither one of us asked for. And now we have to travel 90 miles with, what, what if the baby comes on the way? Have you ever questioned God's timing in your own life? I'm sure if you're like me, I mean, even this year, Many times you have questioned God's timing in your own life. Well, the good news is that God is the right person to question because every event in our lives is under the sovereign and providential control of Almighty God. See, behind Caesar's reasons, whatever they were, laid God's reasons. Behind Caesar's uh, uh, rationale was God's rationale, God's purposes. Proverbs says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And God, 700 years earlier, had promised that the Messiah would be born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. Micah, the prophet, said, but you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. One scholar puts it this way, the accidental events of history have become acts of destiny. The ruler was to come out of Bethlehem, and only a governmental decree puts the parents in the right place. There'd be no other reason for them to go other than that a man who could kill you if you don't do what he tells you to do has commanded you to go right now to pay your taxes. Luke tells us that it's while they were in Bethlehem that Jesus was born. God kept his promise. They I'm sure, I I can't imagine, maybe they did. If if they had Micah's prophecy in mind, they're better than I am. I can't imagine that in their mind they're saying, oh, I know why. The the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Of course we'll make it there. Whatever stress they were under, God kept his promise. Jesus is born there. Now notice Luke's language. He says, the time came. Now that's a normal phrase, nothing really spectacular about that phrase, but But when given the context of redemptive history, that phrase means a lot. It carries a lot of weight. Because basically, ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve, there was a a timetable set for the Redeemer to come. When God issued His judgment for sin and He was bringing down all of these words of judgment, the first gospel was proclaimed. In Genesis 3.15, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And ever since that first proclamation, for those thousands of years that progressed, the world waited, whether they knew it or not, for the serpent killer to arrive. And Scripture tells us here that when the time came, Galatians 4.4, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. When God said, now is the time, everything was executed perfectly according to his plan. Now notice, even though this is God's plan, even though God has orchestrated this whole thing, even though he's the one behind Caesar's proclamation, notice when they arrive, what's waiting for them? What are their accommodations? You know, as stressful as I was getting Michelle to the Bryn Mawr Birthing Center, when we arrived, we were immediately put at ease. When we Walked in, they were waiting. There were about four or five people with smiling faces, and they said, Wait, yep, here, we're, we're waiting for you. Come right on back here. They had a nice room, a bed, they had midwives in there, all kinds of things waiting for us to arrive. What about Mary and Joseph? What did they have? Well, Luke tells us. Now, the Greek word that we have translated here, in, there was no room for them in the inn. We don't know exactly what that, what that is. It's a, it's a term that, that carries various meanings. It, it could have meant 
something like we would call an inn, some place for travelers from, uh, that are kind of coming into town for some reason. It, it, could, it could mean a guest room in a house. Uh, we're not sure. The point is really that there was no room there. That's the point. What, whatever this place was, there was no room for them there. And we don't know why there was no room. Maybe it was because they were too poor. We know they don't have much money, and we'll find that out later when they come to the temple with their offering. Maybe it was because Bethlehem had a lot of people there, and it was already stocked with, with people traveling in for, for this census. I'm sure there were Roman officials that were there staying to, to administer this census and to collect the data. And so, there was no room. Some scholars believe that Jesus was essentially born out in the open in something like resembling a courtyard. One commentator says this, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he grasped in the cold, and his cry pierced the night. Now notice that Jesus is called Mary's firstborn son. The Greek word there, translated firstborn, uh, is a word that just means what you might think, the, the first in a series. And we know from other New Testament passages, that, that Mary did indeed have other children. Uh, Jesus had sisters, we find that out. He also had brothers, and we know, in fact, two of his brothers wrote books of the Bible. James and Jude were written by Jesus's brothers that were born of Mary and Joseph. And so, what Scripture says is that Jesus was Mary's firstborn, but that being said, that the firstborn carried a lot of weight because the firstborn son was the one who inherited. And Jesus was to be the one who inherited everything that was prophesied about David's future son, who would sit and inherit God's throne. Also, the firstborn son was to be completely consecrated and dedicated fully to the Lord. We find this in Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, "'Consecrate to me all the firstborn.'" Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And if there was any child in the history of the world who was born, who was fully dedicated to the purpose of God from birth, it was Jesus of Nazareth. While Jesus is Mary's firstborn, there is another word used of Jesus which translates the only begotten or the one and only. It's a different Greek word. And, and whereas Mary is, is Jesus' firstborn son, he is the Father's only begotten. He is the Father's one and only. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word there, translated only begotten or one and only, means unique. One of its kind. Jesus is the unique Son of the Father. Now you would think that with the birth of the Christ, the Son of God, there would be great fanfare. But really, Luke talks as if it's like any other birth. Maybe even less than any other birth because there they are alone, perhaps out in the open. We do see, though, that fanfare comes. And it comes to the most unlikely of people. We see here, and in the same region, that same area, there were shepherds out in the field, and they were keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, you can picture this. How dark do you think it was out in those Judean hills that night? I mean, there's no electricity, no city lights nearby. I mean, the only light that would have been there would have been the light of the stars and the moon, and we don't know how cloudy it was. How quiet you think it was? There were no airplanes, no cars, uh, no TV, no phones. And, and in the stillness of that night, a night like every other night for these shepherds who watched their flock by night, suddenly we see here that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, when was the last time that the glory of the Lord shone? Other than when the glory shone with the angel to Zechariah, who was inside the temple by himself. The last time the glory of the Lord shone was prior to the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, when the first temple was destroyed hundreds of years earlier. The temple, that first temple that Solomon built was destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And since then, even with the, the beauty, the outward beauty of, of Herod's rebuilt temple, there was no Shekinah glory. That had departed. Suddenly, this night, when the true temple appears... In a manger, the glory of the Lord shines around these men. Now, there are two things that tend to frighten people in Scripture. There's more, but two things that almost always bring fear are angels sent from God and the glory of God. And these guys get both. These guys are shepherds in the dark, in the quiet, and suddenly an angel appears and the glory of the Lord shines. I can't imagine how scared these guys must be. We don't have to imagine it. Scripture tells us. I mean, we see here they are filled with great fear. Now, you might not know this, but, but you do know a little bit of Greek. The Greek word for fear is phobia. Phobia. And this phrase here, just listen to how afraid they are. I mean, filled with great fear, that, that's a good, a good translation, but it may be underselling it. They were, in the Greek, ephobethesan phobon mega. 
We all know what mega means. They were as scared and probably more scared than they've ever been in their entire lives. Now why? Why are they so afraid? Well, I would imagine, first of all, no doubt because of this sudden change. I mean, that's, you know, even we who are used to movies and CGI would be scared to death if, if that happened to us. But I think it's, it's more than that. Because, you know, we tend to think of shepherds in a positive light. We've seen enough Christmas plays and all of that, but that's not how they were thought of back then. Shepherds in that day were thought of as horrible people, generally speaking. They were thought of as the scum of the earth. They were considered the lowest of the low. I was thinking, well, you know, they're probably uh, just above tax collectors and prostitutes. But one scholar, as I was studying this, says the only people lower than shepherds at that particular time in Jewish history were lepers, though they were the lowest of the low. Why? Well, their job made them ceremonially unclean, first and foremost. But secondly, a lot of them tended to be thieves. They would steal one another's sheep, and so it just kind of became known that a shepherd is a thief and a liar. In fact, they were considered so low that their testimony was not valid in court, in a court of law. So these lowly sinner outcasts suddenly come face to face with the holy presence of Almighty God. Now, all you have to do is go back and read the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah comes face to face with the holiness of God. He sees a vision of God seated on his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. And seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah, who at that time may have been the most righteous man in Israel, when this man who is holy and righteous compared to other human beings comes face to face with the, the holiness of God, he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Isaiah said. That woe is me, for I am lost. He's basically saying, let me be damned. That's why verse 10 is so amazing. Here are sinners. Here are outcasts. Those who knew they were sinners. Those who everyone else thought of as the worst of sinners. And when a messenger of God arrives, surrounded by the glory of the holiness of God, the message is not fear, for you are all doomed. The message is fear not. Why? Why? Is it because they weren't really sinners? They weren't really all that bad? No, they were actually worse than people thought of them. In, in terms of, 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 of human uh, horizontal reckoning, they were bad. But when compared to the righteous standard of God, they were far worse. It isn't because they weren't sinners, and it's, it's not because God cease to be holy. Those two things remain true. It's because 
the angel brought with them good news of great joy. The the word good news here is, is simply the word that means gospel. They brought with them the gospel. A sinner confronted solely with the holiness of God should do nothing but fear. We do ourselves a disservice when we basically tell ourselves outside of the gospel that I'm fine, that I don't need Christ, that I'm okay meeting God when I die in my own righteousness. That is a bad idea. Outside of Christ, we ought to fear, and fear far more than we do. But inside of Christ... Covered by the gospel of Christ, we have no fear. Christ changes everything. Notice what the angel says. The angel says, I bring you, you shepherds, plural, good news of great joy. Now, now when a baby is born, who delivers the news and, and to whom is that news generally delivered? Isn't it generally the parents of that baby that deliver the news, and and don't they deliver it to their friends and and family members? That's that's what we do. But but here, notice that, that the news of this birth isn't shared by Mary and Joseph. It's shared by God. And it's not shared to Mary and Joseph's friends and family. It's shared to shepherds that they don't even know. Perhaps it's fitting that with the birth of Jesus, the very first people to hear this good news that Jesus is born are the most outcast and worst of sinners. What a sight accompanies this good news. Luke tells us that this one angel that they already feared is suddenly accompanied by a multitude of it. This this multitude is the same word used to describe the stars in the sky. You can imagine what that scene must have looked like. This heavenly host, this, these are the armies of heaven. The, the angelic host, the armies, the divine armies of God appear. What a contrast to John's birth. John's birth was great, to be sure, and it was accompanied by miracles, but, but surely nothing like this. Here for the birth of Christ the armies of heaven came out to honor their commander-in-chief. <laughs> no baby was ever so well guarded as this one. They sang, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those he is well pleased. It's interesting, that's what Isaiah said. Isaiah said that this son would come and he was called, would, would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, it's one thing to announce the birth of a child to people that don't really know. I mean, I guess that kind of happens when parents put, you know, blue or pink balloons out on the mailbox or whatever so that any passerby sees that a child's been born. It's another thing to invite everybody to come and see this baby. People that the, the parents don't know. And, but we see here that's, that's exactly what the angels do. They, they tell them where to go and what to look for. 
Now, now if a great king is born, Alexander the Great or, or a pharaoh, King Tut or something like that, what would be the sign of his birth? You, you would expect the sign to be you, you go to the city and you'll find there the greatest of palaces and go in there and you'll find the, the, the greatest of beds, a bed only for, for the prince or this king and, and surrounded by uh, a, a great host of servants. Now what do you suppose is going to be the sign when the king of kings is born? When the greatest of all kings comes to earth, when God himself takes on human flesh. Notice that the sign, the angels say, the sign that you are to look for, the sign that you'll see when you'll know it's him, is that you'll find him wrapped in peasant's strips and lying in a feeding trough for animals. What a sign. What a sign. You see, if, if Jesus had been born where we think he should have been born, uh, the palace, Caesar's palace in Rome, these shepherds could have heard about it, but they would not have ever been invited to see it. But God comes where the lowliest of sinners can come to him. Why? Why is that? Well, it's what verse 11 says. Notice the angel's words. Again, for unto you, plural, you shepherds is born this day. Isaiah said the same thing. For to us, a child is born. To us, the people, a son is given. The angels are, are speaking here to the shepherds again. Think of that. I mean, isn't that weird? Isn't Jesus born to Mary and Joseph? I mean, I know that when, when we had our six children, they were born to us. And when the doctor or the midwife or whoever delivered the baby, they handed this baby to us and said, here's your baby. Wouldn't it be weird if the, the doctor delivered the baby and ran out into the hallway and ran up and down in the whole hospital and said, hey, this baby in room 301 is born to all of you. He's your baby, everybody. Come and see him. Well, why, why is this little baby born to them? Well, again, notice the angels don't say, unto you is born a baby boy. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If Jesus was any other baby, it wouldn't, he wouldn't be, be born to them. He would have been born to Mary and Joseph. The reason he was born to them and to us is because he is not just any baby boy. He is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those three words together, Savior, Christ, and Lord, are only used of Christ here. In this passage, at his birth. Jesus from birth is born as three things. He is born the Messiah. He is born God in the flesh, and he is born to be the savior of the world. Notice what happens next. Notice, as we close, verses 15 to 20, first of all, the shepherds believe. They believe God's word concerning Jesus. 
God tells them what to look for. He tells them where to find their Savior. He tells them that the person in whom God the Savior resides is this boy, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. And they believe God and go running to investigate. That's what they say, right? How weird would the story have been if all of this happened and the shepherds looked at each other and yawned and said, well, let's go back to tending the sheep. How weird would that have been? It, it, it wouldn't have made sense. I mean, it, in one sense, it, it would have made some sense, I guess. I mean, tending the sheep and, and guarding them was their livelihood. It was how they made it in life. It was how they put food on the table. They, they had to watch their sheep so that someone else wouldn't steal them or they wouldn't run away. It was important, but they left it all behind. They ran to Bethlehem to see this thing that have happened. Because while tending the sheep and guarding the sheep was important, this was more important. This was of utmost importance. If this was true, then they are saved from the wrath of God. Friend, I don't know about you. I, I, I think in a, in a crowd like this, there are probably some people here who don't yet believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and the Savior, God in flesh. But why not investigate it when you leave? What, what else is more important? I mean, it, it only makes sense that when you hear this news that you would leave here today and at some point in your life say, I'm going to look into that. Why would you leave here and yawn and say, well, I've got to get back to my daily day-to-day -day job. I've got groceries to buy and people to care for. Of course that's important. But death is on the horizon for every one of us in this room. And Scripture says it is appointed for you to die and then to face judgment. What are you going to tell God? I had too much on my plate to see whether Jesus was really the Christ. If that's what you want to say, then I wish you well. Notice, secondly though, notice that when they discover what the angels told them was true, they run out to tell others what they had seen. They start spreading the news. It is true what the angel said. It is true that this baby born in Bethlehem is the Savior of the world. Christian, those of you who do believe in this, when was the last time you told someone else? That this world is hungry for good news. I mean, as we were in Costco looking for food for tomorrow morning when we were looking for our cherry and cheese danish there were people running around searching for things to buy how many of them have never heard this news how many of them were are trying to cling to something on christmas morning that can give them some kind of happiness in this world you are carrying around with you the good news of what happened that day Maybe it's time for you to do what these shepherds did and to share it so that others know as well. Now, as I close, I want to point out one thing. One thing that 
that can be missed. I missed it until I studied it because I didn't know this fact. Scholars say that, that these shepherds who left these sheep, that they were keeping watch over sheep that would eventually be used for temple sacrifices. Those were the sheep that they were tending. These sheep that were nearby Jerusalem were, were going to be used in the temple sacrifices. That happened all the time. How appropriate then that, that these shepherds would leave all of them to go see the boy who would one day be the Lamb of God. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I mean, in one sense, Jesus was going to do away with their profession anyway. Once Jesus went to the cross, there was no more need for animal sacrifices. He was the lamb. You see, Isaiah spoke of him as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, but Isaiah said he would be more than that. He said he would be a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You know, no baby was ever so well guarded as Jesus, and we see this in the New Testament. Jesus was protected his entire life. He slipped through crowds that, that were crying for his blood. He would get out. Uh, he slipped through every person that wanted to harm him. The angels had this hedge of protection around him his entire life until that day that they all stepped away and they watched in silence as their Lord and their commander-in-chief willingly went to be the Lamb of God. That day all protection ceased and Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and to be spat upon and to be mocked and to ultimately be crucified on a Roman cross. You see this? little baby boy that we remember this morning and that we remember every Christmas is the one child whose mission was to die. His mission when he was born was to die. And he was born and laid in a humble manger at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life he died hanging on a scandalous Roman cross. Why? Why? Why did he do all of that? And why do we celebrate it? Be because it was at his birth that we see that he came to be the Savior of all. That it was not the, the mighty and the rich and the beloved, but the poor and the outcast and the unloved who were welcomed in. From the very beginning, God shows that this good news, the good news of great joy that I'm preaching today is for all people. People like you and people like me. And that's the good news that we remember when we leave this morning. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your Son. We're so thankful for this good news, Lord. We're thankful that we have not been left 
the news only that we will face you one day in our own feeble righteousness, but that a Savior has been born. We thank you that he was not only born, but that he, he went to the cross, that he died, that he, he took the punishment that we deserved. And we pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, we would not just focus on all of the things that, that we love about, about Christmas, Lord, but that our focus would be on our Savior. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.